Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, uh, as always, Ian Lewins, one of the Children's Emergency Department consultants based in Derby. Um, and I'm very pleased to be joined by two colleagues today, uh, joining me from paediatrics, both based in Northern Ireland. Uh, so first of all, uh, we've got consultant Dr. Shilpa Shah. Good morning, Shilpa. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ian. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. Uh, and I'm also joined as well by Dr Amy Henry, who's an ST1 in paediatrics, also based in Belfast. Good morning. Good morning, I'm well, thanks. So I'm particularly pleased to be uh, recording this podcast because normally I go out and ask people if they'll come on, whereas today's was slightly different in that uh, you guys approached me and said, actually, can we come and talk about this project that we've been doing? And that's relating to vaccine hesitancy and something you've set up called the, the pro-vac, the pro-vaccine movement. And I wonder, Shilpa, if I can start with you, if you could tell me a little bit about how this project came about um, how you went about setting it up and why you set it up in the first place. So, yes, um, Ian, we were literally just having a session um, about March time on um, our sunrise evidence-based morning sessions on Wednesday. And the title I had given uh, two of my trainees was The Unvaccinated Child. And uh, Amy Henry, obviously one of them, and the other one is Marty Hanna, who is an SD5 trainee, um, came up with this wonderful session where they presented, you know, in, in great depth and detail about what the various concerns parents can have and how we can tackle them. And they also quoted a wonderful Don't Forget the Bubbles by Margie Danchin, if I may plug that in already, uh, in 2018, which talked about, you know, why parents have, um, you know, hesitancy and why they do things as they do. So it all started out as that session. And then we thought, you know, we could develop this further. One of the things that had been suggested was that moms in their antenatal period can be quite suggestible in terms of um, information and uptake of information. So we started with antenatal moms trying to ascertain what was the hesitancy. And then, of course, things progressed as time went on. And, you know, through various little PDSAs, we um, started doing education sessions for families in a very non-confrontational, non-argumentative way. But very soon we realized that some of our healthcare professionals wanted to learn more. And we thought we might get a further reach if we can, you know, help our healthcare professionals understand how to have these conversations. And therefore, the ProVac movement started. It's all encompassing and it's only just starting. And I don't know what the future holds for us, but it's all about positive conversations on vaccine safety. Excellent. Uh, Amy, if I can turn to you now. Um, as an ST1 uh, getting involved in this project, uh, how did you get involved and, and why did you get involved? Well, my section of that teaching session was actually from the anti-vax perspective and was trying to um, just provide our group with a bit more information of what is available to parents out there and the information that they can get, which I found very interesting in that the sheer volume of information from resources that aren't, necess aren't necessarily reliable but obviously very accessible um, to be interesting. Um, and then afterwards, Shilpa approached myself as well as my other colleagues about um, providing information sessions for, for other people and getting part of this pro-vac movement. For me, really, I think... Uh, 
being part of that teaching session just showed me how vast the information is out there um, and how it's such an important rising issue for not only pediatrics but public health um, and I think it's very important that you know knowledge is key here and it's important to empower parents with accurate information um, and part of doing that is enabling other healthcare professionals to engage in conversations with parents and feel confident in doing that and I know as a very junior trainee before I started all this I wouldn't have been confident if a parent said they hadn't vaccinated a child about engaging them with why they'd made that decision or being able to provide them with um, resources or directing them to import to accurate information so I just think I really thought it was important to not only educate the public and the parents, but um, share the knowledge that I was gaining with my peers, really. Well, for that talk that we initially did, I was intentionally looking for information that was um, available on the internet that was more towards not vaccinating children. So I suppose I was looking for skewed views, really, but it was very, very easily accessible and sort of um, parent-friendly information but very persuasive language I thought so you know even for me I was like whoa you know the stuff that they were saying it was written in a very um, persuasive intelligent way that you could be uh, led to think that they were providing uh, facts rather than opinions or anecdotal stories sort of thing so yeah absolutely um, so Shilpa, you, you've set up this project, this workshop that you're doing. Um, you do it locally. It seems to work. And I guess the question is, where did you take it from there? Um, so Ian, what we've done is we started small. So we thought, let's just go around to our antenatal clinics and speak to the midwives because they obviously have a close contact with the um, mothers-to-be. So we first started in our antenatal um, sections in our own hospital. And very quickly, we moved on to our educational hubs, which is a pediatric um, education multidisciplinary session that we have on Wednesdays and the first Wednesdays, which is something we're trying to evolve. And here we had pharmacists, we had allied health professionals, pediatricians in training and otherwise um, consultants and SAS doctors. And thereafter, we went to primary care hubs as part of our GP connections and um, offered a session there. Um, soon we realized that we were being approached by people and we were continuing to engage with them. So we went to our medical school as well at Queen's and presented there as well. And we also took the opportunity to present at our Quality Improvement Day, which was a day attended by almost about five, 600 people. And we had two workshops we had to do back to back where we had about 30, 40 in each. So I suppose so far we have reached out to about 150, 160 people who've given us feedback. But I think we've probably got a long way to go yet. OK, so if we can have a look in a little bit more detail at the workshop that you've set up, um, my understanding is that essentially there are four 
scenarios that you run through that uh, attempt to capture different issues that arise around uh, concerns about vaccine safety and, and various other issues. Um, and if we can just talk through those, that would be great. So, um, Shilpa, if you can talk me through your first scenario, which relates to a premature baby born at 28 weeks gestation, who's now due their first set uh, of immunisations on the neonatal unit. So this particular scenario was actually led by one of our colleague nurse practitioners, Colm Darby, who uh, wasn't able to join us today, but I'm hoping I'm going to do a good representation for him. Um, now, this particular scenario was actually just the usual in terms of giving information about the vaccines. But the mother had a few concerns. Number one was that, is my child not too young to get the vaccines? The second thing she said was, you know, I'm breastfeeding this child. So why should I, you know, not get enough protection from that? And then what are the things we need to watch for? Um, to this, I suppose, you know, um, our response was that actually premature babies have missed that third trimester surge of passive transplacental transfer of anti, uh, antibodies from the mother to the baby because they were born early. So that probably leaves the child a bit more vulnerable. And that was explained through very simple language, not using complex medical language. The second thing that was mentioned then was that, you know, my child um, is being breastfed by me. So doesn't that confer enough immunity? At this point, I think as healthcare professionals, we need to congratulate families because choosing to breastfeed is the best choice for the baby and certainly for a premature baby. Um, as we know, the, the rates of breastfeeding in uh, UK are generally not very high and certainly in Northern Ireland, it's even lower. So we do need to congratulate families to choose the right and the best form of feeding. However, it is important to note that breast milk immunity that is offered is a passive immunity. And what we are looking for in immunization is to get the baby to start producing his own or her own immune responses. And that's the active immunity that vaccines will confer. It's also important to note that whilst breastfeeding offers a lot of immunity, it doesn't have specific immunity for specific conditions. So whilst breastfeeding is a beautiful and fantastic blanket for the child in terms of offering immunity, vaccines and breastfeeding should not be exclusive of each other. So those were the two key messages we wanted to give in that scenario. And the third thing was, of course, that, you know, children who were born prematurely, um, probably best to have the first vaccines in a secondary care setting where a child is observed and this is something can be logistically quite hard, but it's something that the JCVI has um, recommended. And if the first set of vaccines is, you know, uh, without any kind of untoward effect, such as, you know, apneas or any um, other minor issues, then the next set of vaccines can be happily given in primary care. Excellent. And I guess the take home message from this one really is that, uh, you know, premature babies are at particular risk of infection and therefore it's incredibly important that they, they have their vaccines on time.
So, Amy, uh, let's move on then to scenario two, um, which is, I think, one that's potentially common and familiar with many people who've encountered vaccine hesitancy, uh, and that's the uh, 13-month-old child who presents to an advanced paediatric nurse practitioner um, on the short-stay paediatric assessment unit um, who expresses concerns uh, about the MMR, and in particular, that MMR causes autism. Yeah, so this scenario was done by one of my um, advanced paediatric nurse practitioners, Vincent, so I'm representing him as well, so hopefully I did a good job for him. So, um, yeah, it was really just, you know, to be sympathetic to the impact a child having autism can have <clears throat> on the family and the wider family circle. Um, you don't want, you want to acknowledge the parent's concern, but certainly separate autism and the difficulties it can bring to the MMR um, it's about educating the family without being confrontational with them that the uh, there isn't a link between autism and the MMR um, and that sometimes it can be useful to provide information so um, letting them know that the there's been large studies um, and when they're actually combined it includes over a million children that has shown that there is that the MMR does not cause autism, that there's no increased risk of autism if you have the MMR um, and it doesn't trigger autism. So it's important to to put across that information whilst being empathetic to the patient who may have a relative who has autism, but just letting them know that it wasn't the the vaccine that caused the autism um, and it's also important to um, let the the parent know that the MMR should be given as one vaccine and not split up as as can be questioned into the three separate measles, mumps and rubella vaccinations. And I guess this is something that, that many people can relate to when discussing uh, the MMR with with parents. Um, one of the issues that they raised was that, you know, can it not be given separately? Is this not just overloading the body with vaccines at this time? No, no. Your, your immune systems, we actually discussed that in a later scenario, but your immune system is well equipped to deal with a lot of germs and bugs and does so every single day and the vaccines use up a very very small percentage of your immune system so there's no reason why um getting the measles mumps and rubella vaccination as a combined vaccination um would wouldn't be wouldn't be safe or allowed excellent uh, thank you amy um Let's move then on to scenario three, uh, Shilpa, and back to yourself. Um, so this is a scenario that takes place in an outpatient department where a senior paediatric trainee is assessing a toddler um, who's got a history of asthma and egg allergy. Um, and it's been recommended that this child has his flu vaccination, but parents are worried about his egg allergy and the flu vaccine. And I guess this is something, again, that, that will crop up quite commonly uh, in the paediatric outpatient setting potentially. That's right. And this particular scenario, we were trying to, you know, emulate what happens in reality in different parts. So this was in an outpatient area where my SD4 trainee, Marty Hanna, was having a conversation with the family. And it is important, of course, as we know, that children who have asthma 
would be at a higher risk of getting more severe form of flu infections. So they would be categorized in the high risk along with other chronic conditions. So it is really important for families to know that even outside their age bracket of getting the usual flu vaccine at school, etc., this child would definitely um, need the flu vaccine even more so than the other peers. And it is important to acknowledge that you know families really worry about egg allergy. It is not something that we need to sort of minimize. We need to acknowledge that families do worry about it. But at the same time, we need to explore what it is that they are worried about. And certainly for children who've got egg allergy, even the ones who've had the likes of anaphylaxis have been studied in terms of a study called the Sniffle study, which included about eight, 900 children who had severe egg allergy, who had received the flu vaccine, and they were observed with no untoward effect or at worst, very mild effects. And this study actually helped us recommend that the flu vaccine is safe to children who have egg allergy and even egg anaphylaxis. The reason being the low, low ovalbumin content of these makes it very safe and vaccines are tested and tested and tested. So there is a high safety profile of these vaccines and there's surveillance going on about any untoward effects. And certainly if there is any untoward effect, there is an open and transparent um, availability of information. So it is important to acknowledge that you know, egg allergy is definitely something that families worry about, but it is safe to give the flu vaccine, that too, in primary care. So it is important, and in schools as well. So it isn't that the child needs to come up to the hospital. There is one particular exclusion, and those are the children who have had egg anaphylaxis that have required intensive care admission. And the reason why that is excluded is because they were not included in the study. And I guess this also leads on to concerns that uh, some people have about how vaccines are produced and the, the chemicals and preservatives uh, that are potentially in them. Uh, and is this something that you, you also discuss in this scenario? That's right. So, I mean, I suppose the vaccines are made safe by adding things to it, not unsafe by adding things to it. And these vaccines are prepared meticulously and there's loads and loads of uh, you know, safety checks that are involved. Now, vaccines, obviously, the live vaccines require to be attenuated, which is their sort of virus or a bacteria, as it were, to be sort of brought down to a safe level. And also, to prevent contamination, you have agents that have been added. For example, antibiotics have been added. But these have been done at the very early stage of manufacture, and the antibiotics that have been added, for example, to the MMR would be things that have a low allergy profile anyway. So it is important to highlight that the neomycin that has been added is actually very, very safe and can be used even in people who have penicillin allergy, for example. The other things that have been added are adjuvants and aluminium comes up often in that and pe people have concerns that aluminium can cause things like Alzheimer's and various other things and it's toxic in nature. But actually aluminium is in air, in milk, in water. So it is everywhere. 
And the amount that is used in the vaccine is minuscule. And it's really important that the adjuvant increases the work the vaccine does by releasing small bits so that the body is beginning to produce a good and a sustained immune response. So actually, its role is really vital. Thiamersal is one of the other things that seems to keep creeping up, but we just want to know and make sure that people know that thiamersal hasn't been used in vaccines in the UK from the early 2000s. And even if it was, it is safe. It is a mercurial. And again, as, as we said, it helps to, to you know, keep the vaccine stable, as it were. But it hasn't been used for, you know, from the early 2000s. And um, I think one of the other interesting things, the discussions I've had about things that are in vaccines, relates to um, the use of pork gelatin in things like the nasal flu spray um, and the MMR vaccine, and that how that uh, additive might not be acceptable um, to, to certain communities, and I'm thinking particularly to, to certain uh, Muslim communities. Is that something that you've discussed in this scenario in particular? Um, so we haven't actually discussed it in this scenario, but it is it does creep up in the discussion afterwards. And you know what? I think we might um, include that as one of our sort of discussion points uh, as we go along. Um, and you know, you can get uh, porcine-free vaccines available. Now they wouldn't be available upfront, but if there is any kind of a discussion to this effect, certainly that is something that can be made available, and it is available. Absolutely. Um, let's move on then to scenario four and back to you, Amy, if I may. Um, so this scenario is in a busy emergency department with a junior paediatric trainee seeing a 16-month-old child uh, whose family are from uh, Lithuania. Um, and the child is completely unimmunized because the parents say they don't believe in vaccination um, and how one goes about handling this scenario. Yeah, so... Um Obviously, it's as part of the paediatric history <clears throat> in an emergency department is their past medical history. You know, have they had their vaccinations? Um, and it's really about uh, engaging with the parent in a positive conversation. You're aware that majority of the time the parents have probably spoken to other doctors or healthcare professionals, but it's always good to, uh, if the parents are willing, just to go over it again. So it's about engaging the parents in a positive way um asking them uh would they mind discussing it with you and if they're willing to chat to you again then uh it's important to to acknowledge what they're doing that's good so in the conversation that we have the mum talks about how she breastfed as when he was a younger baby why he um is getting a good balanced diet and she's doing all she can so it's also important to acknowledge that the mum is doing well in other aspects of his life as well and answer the question. So I think this this conversation is sort of part of the, re this type of conversation is part of the reason why I think the vaccine project is so important. Um, so she is asking questions about um, overloading the, this his system with getting multiple vaccinations and you have to explain how vaccines work and how uh, they just show the the immune system a small part of a vac of a of a virus or a bacteria, and then it enables the immune system to learn and react the next time it comes across it. Just to give her all the information that 
that you can to make her the most to enable her to make the most informed decision about whether to vaccinate the child. It's important to explore all of their concerns so as much as possible within the time constraints of a of an emergency department. So, um, she also said about getting um lots of vaccines at once and then um about how the vaccine project is different in Lithuania and to it is in the UK uh, so you, it's acknowledging the concerns that she has about that as well but sometimes you know to, having conversations with parents you have to think of it um as a continuum of people who will refuse all vaccinations and with those people each conversation is important and it's important to be positive and inform them that it's never too late to catch up and the longer the child is on vaccinated the longer they're unprotected for but those are the people that you're probably not going to persuade um or or change their mind because they're always going to think or they may think that you are um just as as in this conversation that um she was worried about just believing you because you obviously want the, the, her child to get vaccinated. So they're they're the most difficult people to to change their mind. Or the, the, if you think of it as a continuum, right, to the people who accept everything, it's the people in the middle who are a bit hesitant, who with more positive conversations and more information, you might actually change their mind and they might vaccinate the children. Um, it's them that we want to to engage the most and by offering them the information you might actually enable them or encourage them to the right resources and that the correct information might change their mind to get their child vaccinated. Excellent and, and I guess many parts of this project are very much about positive conversations and trying to direct people towards appropriate resources. Um, and I guess resources is something that, that crops up uh, again in something I've seen quite recently in a study about to be published, which looked at um, reasons why children hadn't completed all their vaccinations. And I think the paper suggested that whilst from a health professional concern, there's obviously concerns about misinformation or inadequate information. Actually, this study found that one of the main reasons that children, particularly if they came from families where there were multiple children, weren't vaccinated, uh, was simply not being able to access um, the, the immunisations from healthcare providers. So there's clearly an onus not just on parents, but on, on healthcare to say, actually we need to be in a position where you can be provided with these immunizations. Absolutely. And and I suppose this is something that is very context specific. And um, if we zoom out, and I know we should, you know, act local, but we should sort of think global. And if you look at it globally, we will find that things like um, civil strife and war, etc., have ravaged parts of the world where vaccine is not accessible altogether. And, you know, to say that everything in terms of reduced uptake is due to vaccine hesitancy, 
would be actually mitigating a much larger issue. And it is important that we take the onus upon ourselves to improve the availability of the vaccine, make them fashionable enough and make them required enough that people will take the trouble to come there, but also take the trouble to come to people. And it's really important that our primary care colleagues are available to, you know, have uh, text alerts, for example, reminders, having GP practices with a named vaccine champion. So those kind of things. And of course, that those are sort of beyond the remit of what we are doing. We are encouraging positive conversations. And certainly as, um, as, a, as a whole body uh, in the UK, people need to start thinking about strategies to improve uh, the uptake of vaccines to, you know, places where it's it's pretty hard to get to the GP practices, for example, and, you know, to even, you know, try to reach out to people in their homes, etc. You know, so it might be going as far as that to improve the uptake. Absolutely. And it's excellent. So I guess what next for uh, this project, the ProVac movement? Um, so, yeah, so we have we have large dreams. And uh, I suppose uh, what we are going to do next is identify champions within different parts of our little um, country, um, firstly in Northern Ireland itself. So we've already started to reach out to people and we've identified a few champions in other hospitals uh, we will um, call it the ProVac movement, have our presence on social media and try and, you know, utilize that big, free, available uh, interface to, to, you know, connect to people. And the idea is positive conversation. The idea is to make every contact count. And the idea is to leave an open door for the ones that seem to be refusing all vaccines so that if they do change their mind, we know where to find, you know, the help and signpost people. And we have also got funding uh, or almost got funding from our local RQIA. So we will be looking at logistics of trying to expand this. And we would like to keep that name, the ProVac movement, just sounds a bit fashionable. So hopefully that will work. Um, and of course, we would like to take any further ideas that you may have, Ian, for us uh, in terms of, you know, widening our scope. So absolutely, you know, if we can do something that we haven't thought of, we would like to consider that too. Excellent. And Shilpa, if people are listening to this and are really interested in getting involved, um, can they contact you to, to take this forward at all? So yes, I am very freely available on Twitter these days. I have only just recently started the, the whole Twitter thing. So absolutely do contact me. Um, on my Twitter feed and also on my email, uh, which can be um, uh, my home email or my trust email. So that's drshilparshah at yahoo.co.uk or shilpa.shah at southerntrust.hscni.net. So you're very welcome to contact me with any ideas that you may have. Excellent. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of our listeners that, that will be interested and will be in touch. Um, so all it remains for me to do is to thank you both very much for, for joining me today. So it's a very much a thank you to Dr. Shilpa Shah and Dr. Amy Henry. And thank you for listening.